Welcome to Tiber's Watchcast, an audio companion to the Substack movie newsletter Tiber's Watchlist at tiberswatchlist.substack.com. I'm a film critic and author with four decades of experience, and the Watchcast is an excuse to invite friends and colleagues over to talk about movies and genres and TV shows and music and weird pop culture stuff. All right, so welcome to the fourth and putatively final conversation between Meredith Goldstein and myself about romantic movies and rom-coms and, in today's case, pretty damn near a romantic tragedy. We have talked about goofy Hollywood romantic movies. We've talked about classic romantic movies, and all these podcasts are available on the watch list. Today, we are going to be talking about a movie called in the Mood for Love as both a great movie, but also a example of the international romance movies, which definitely hews to different rules than the Hollywood romance movie. It's uh, a movie I like very much. You had never seen it before. Is that correct? I really hadn't. And when I watched it, I had a memory of knowing more about it, right? Like remembering it coming out. Was it 2000? No, what year? 2000. 2000. 2000. I would have been a recent college graduate who probably was not very focused on going to the movies and and going to good movies. But I have to tell you, I any emotion you can possibly have, I had it. I had it with this with this movie. And I, I would love to know as we talk about this what American films you think this might have influenced over the years. It doesn't sort of fall back on all of the devices and tropes we know. Uh, necessarily, but I wondered if I could spot some of its influence in various films that came after. Should we say what it is for people who haven't seen it? Just so. Yes. Okay. So, In the Mood for Love is a 2000 movie written and directed by Wong Kar Wai. It's a love story set in 1962 Hong Kong about two married people who live next door to each other, played by. Uh, Maggie Chung and Tony Leung, who discover their spouses are having an affair. And they become obsessed with this and sort of draw together in in an odd way, try and figure out why their spouses are having an affair by almost sort of duplicating what they imagine their their meetings might be like. And along the way, they realize that they're falling in love with each other. It is a supremely atmospheric film. It is shot by Christopher Doyle and Mark Lee Pingbing. And um, it is one of the most sensuous and sensual looking movies, I think, that has ever been made. And that goes for the soundtrack as well. It's, it is incredibly sensual to listen to. And it's a movie about longing in a very different way than we expect Hollywood romances to behave. So that said, I'm curious. So what was your experience as you were watching it? I mean, they will rip the rug right out from under you so many different times in terms of feeling one thing and then feeling another thing. And I should say that these two actors are wonderful, incredibly attractive, and their costumes, their their outfits are, you know, to die for. So there's so and visually the film is so stunning to look at that I found myself sometimes distracted by them and going back and rereading subtitles. And Mm -hmm. I will say this, it is the movie that has forced me to rewind the most in the last two years of pandemic watching, not because I had missed subtitles, but mainly because I wanted to see something again. 
mm-hmm. because I wanted to say the see the way a hand touched another hand or the hand touched the table. Or I think when you talk about longing, very rarely in romantic films, rom-coms, rom-tragedies, are we allowed to let two people miss each other or not be together mm-hmm. or get get almost to a place and then not? And there are several moments. It made me think this is a very different movie, but that moment in the bridges of Madison County where she's like in the car and you're like, is hmm. she going to get out of the car? Is she going to get out of the car? And of course, she doesn't get out of the car, but you're like, oh, but you could have gotten out of the car. There, there are a few very poignant moments in this movie where, much like a horror movie where you're screaming, no, don't go in there. Yeah. I'm screaming at the TV, go in there, go in there. Um, right, get a move on. Get a move on, knock on the door, say, state your intentions. And of course, we're bound not only by the marriages that these two people are in, because these are respectful people who do a lot of talk about, we're not like them. We're not like right. these people who are betraying us, and we don't want Correct. to be like them. And yet, of course, as a viewer, I'm like, it's okay. You, they've given you the right to be just as deceitful, but they, they are much more above board about that. And it's worth pointing out that we never actually see the other spouses. Oh, it's such a good device because, like— I know. We see the backs of their heads, and yes. that's it. And another beautiful thing they do, which adds to the friendship between these two people and the love, and is they rehearse how they might feel about certain things. Yes. And— if I can jump to my favorite scene in the movie, and I know where it is, this happens a few times, two or three times in the film where they play out what it would mm-hmm. be like to confront a spouse. What would that person say? How would you react if they admitted the affair? How would you react if they didn't? But at one point, they play out separating from each other. Right. What would happen? How would it feel if if I said, oh, my husband's coming home and then he says to her, well, then I'm I'm gone. And she, it is so real to her, this rehearsal, mm-hmm. that she weeps. And I wept. And it just felt, oh, God, now I'm just, I'm reliving it all over again. But but this idea that, that there are so many almosts, even when they're together, and they do not give themselves permission to do what their spouses are doing, which is to, right. to fully dive into this. Yet by reenacting what they imagine are the conversations that drew their spouses together, they are actually having their own affair, their own emotional affair. Yes, and and one that is augmented by just really getting along, and mm-hmm. and sharing interests. Right? They they are doing activities together. They and and you know what I love about this is this connector. Also, they live next door to each other, but there's also a community that they're sharing. Right? Correct. There there are these this incredible sort of. I, I have been playing mahjong. During Have you now? The, well, so I am now fast-forwarding to be a much older Jewish lady who plays Mahjong. <laughs> At the start of the pandemic, my sister said she had been playing Mahjong online. We'd never played. We didn't grow up in that kind of household. And as far as I know, like, the sort of Jewish-American Mahjong is not particularly, like, it, it borrows from and probably appropriates from a different kind of playing the game. But you would be interested in knowing one of the people I play with is a script supervisor who worked on huh. all of Oliver Stone's films. She did Practical Magic, which is of importance to me. And maybe, I don't know if she feels mm-hmm. that, you know, when she talks about she did, she's like, but I did Platoon. And I'm like, but you did Practical Magic? <laughs> she did Forrest Gump. Actually, if you want to do a, a Google, her name is Susan Mallerstein Watkins. And like her resume will just, it, it's crazy. But we do a lot of talking about films while mm-hmm. watch it, while playing Mahjong. And, you know, it's the kind of game where, like, it just builds community, right? Where, like, everybody wants to gather, even if they're not playing. And to see in this film, and of course we know there, there are incredible scenes in Crazy Rich Asians where, like, a Mahjong move means everything, right? But, like, right. in this film, 
it's just a this has given us a safe way to get to know each other and a connection, um, which I like, too. Right. That these people aren't just neighbors like they're they're It's this whole time in their lives. And, and when I talk about the influence on other films, one of the, the films I thought about was Lost in Translation in mm-hmm. that. This you know that with the and and to me that's like a far less romantic movie and but these are people who are somewhat displaced and temporary Mm. and they will look back at a segment of their lives where where they were important to each other and with this obviously these two people are going to think about this forever but there's this temporary feeling and also the almosts right I wondered if Sofia Coppola sort of designed that last scene where. We never know what Bill Murray says to her. You know, mm-hmm. these these it, there is a longing there too, and I'm not sure it pulls off what this. You know, it, these are dip, apples to oranges a little bit, but moments of almost. Um, and that was one of the films that came to mind for me. That's a really interesting connection. I hadn't made that connection with the whispering in the ear and the f- final scene of In the Mood for Love, where Tony Leung's character is visiting Angkor Wat, the the ancient temple uh, complex in uh, Cambodia, and uh, whispers his secret into a, a hole in the wall, uh, which is something that's planted earlier in the film. But it's that idea of confessing something. In his case, he's just delivering it to the universe. His, his long, all his love for Maggie Chung's character, he's just, he's, he's letting it go. You mentioned displacement. I think that's an important thing. This is a movie about constraints. Um, and it's very much worth mentioning that it takes place in Hong Kong, but among a, a very particular community Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, which reflects Wong Kar Wai's own upbringing. It's the Shanghai expatriate community in Hong Kong that left China as the Cultural Revolution was kicking into gear. So there was a pretty big exodus out of Shanghai and other places in China to Hong Kong, which was still under British rule at that point. So within this community, within the city, there's a smaller community that may not be speaking the same language, that has its own customs. And that's what Wang Kar Wai grew up in and what he wanted to recreate. So that's one of the constraints is that you're in society, but you're also outside of society. But we do get to know the neighbors. We get to know the neighbors better than we can get to know the spouses. You know, we get to know the, the, the landlady's drunk husband. We get, you know, we, we, we get to know a little bit of their lives. And by the way, the landlady is played by um, a singer-actress named Jessica Pan, who, when she was younger, had a lot of Chinese pop hits that you can hear on the soundtrack. Oh, so that's this, cool. Yeah. So, you know, the, so it's set in 1962, and you're hearing something that she recorded then coming out of the radio. Other constraints. Just notice how many scenes are... First of all, the, the apartments are tiny. Yes. The alleyways that they sort of go down to, the, to get their, their takeout are very constrained. And then there are the, they're the, the dresses Maggie Chung's character wears. The Chinese tra- close-fitting dress called uh, the Kipao or the Changsam. They're just gorgeous. And it, she's, it's like every scene, there's a new one. And they almost embody the notion. There's like a visual correlative to the idea of repressed longing and love and lust. Because with that high collar and the tight fitting, it just feels like she's constrained and her hair is perfect. And you want, you know, we, we, you spend the whole movie and he spends the whole movie wishing her hair would not be perfect and wishing, you know, it's about incredibly well-dressed people 
wishing so hard they could take those clothes off. Yes, and he is such a sexy character. I oh, mean, absolutely. it's just, I mean, him, you know, sort of, they, they show him in like an alley or a, it's just, he is quite dreamy um, in my in my official opinion. And, you know, I actually did a lot of pausing also to start Googling, well, what would it, the ramifications have been to divorce? What would, mm. where were people living? Um, you know, because I think this is a movie that both feels very contemporary, being made now a few decades ago, but, which is weird to say, but about decades before that. But it's not in that, you know, the stakes seem that much higher based on where they are, where people are living, where they right. can go, who's going to go where. It, you know, it, it is very much in a place and in a time. And I think that's important, too. But, yeah. Yeah, a, a place and a time where they already feel provisional. They're already, you know, they don't belong there and they're trying to fit in. So what behavior is allowed and not allowed? And what happens if they ca get caught, not just by their spouses, but by the community in which they live in the larger society? They're, the sense of uncertainty about the rules of how to proceed sort of permeates this movie. But I, I like what you also said about how there's a real friendship there. So he's he is a... Um, wannabe writer who's working on a, you know, you know sort of a, uh, a science fiction story. And she becomes his editor and they meet clandestinely in a hotel suite, in this red, red, red hotel suite, which is a refurbished army barracks, actually, with that long red hallway, which is like something out of Freud, to work on his manuscript and gaze longingly at each other. With that music, I'm going to have a clip of it right here. We'll, we'll listen to it which was actually repurposed from another movie, a Japanese movie by um, Seijin Suzuki, who's kind of this wild man director of um, 60s and 70s and beyond uh, Japanese cinema. Um, so that repeated motif, that obsessive string passage just keeps coming back the way people obsess over people. Yeah. People obsess over the people they, that, that they love. Once you get that hook into your head, you can't stop hearing it um, as you're you know, driving around to the grocery store and stuff. And again, that's a very, as a sound, it's very tightly constrained. It's, it's again, almost, this movie is about repression and finding ways where, tiniest spaces where you can allow that repression to explode into something. And it's there in the music. It's there when he um, uses slow motion. All of a sudden, they'll just drift into slow motion and the film just watches these, these absolutely gorgeous people and absolutely gorgeous clothes just be in their uncertainty. It's, it slows time down. It's really, oof. It's, you know, for a movie that takes place in the past, it's one of those movies that feels like it's unfolding very much in the present as you watch it. I'm so glad you're going to play the music because it also provokes this, like, Pavlovian response with the audience, right? Like, the minute I hear it, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Like, you just want to stop. And I think that that, you know, it's very effective in terms mm -hmm. of just they haven't you know they'll stand in front of a wall and play that music and you're like oh they're it's love it's happening right now <laughs> right right well it's everything they can't say to each other I just said that this is a movie that takes place in the present tense. And actually, I want to, I want to reverse myself on that because it's also about memory. You could argue that the whole movie is taking place in their memories. And there's a scene that I think takes place in the later 60s 
And they actually shot a scene in 1972. If you watch the, the DVD, um, there's some deleted scenes. Hmm. And one of them takes place in 1972 when uh, Maggie Chung's character, who by then owns the apartment that they, she was renting earlier hmm. um, and lives there with her husband and son, but she's selling it and this woman comes to check it out. And we realize and she realizes that this is the wife of the Tony Lung character. Oh, wow. And it's also the character. So here's, here we get into to sort of the Baroque intertextuality of Wong Kar Wai, Wong Kar Wai's um, universe. So In the Mood for Love is not a sequel to an earlier movie called uh, Days of Being Wild, which is actually one of, one of my favorite movies of his and one of my favorite movies ever. But it has Maggie Chung and Tony Leung in it. Um, and Maggie Chung's character has the same name that she does in In the Mood for Love. And the woman who comes to look at the apartment at the end is named Lulu, which is a character in the earlier movie. So there are these tendrils that connect them. And then there's a third film that came out later called 2046, which came out in 2004, so four years later, which takes place after the events of In the Mood for Love and actually has a whole lot of stuff going on in it, some of which is kind of science fiction. And it, it leads me to believe, well, maybe... This movie is the story that Tony Lung's character was writing in In the Mood for Love. It's, oh, I love yeah, that. It gets increasingly surreal, and it's a harder movie to grapple with. And In the Mood for Love, it's essentially a very simp simple film. But uh, the three of them together make up this kind of like almost prism, you know, where you look through one and you see bits and pieces of the others. But they're not really sequels. Um, so if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, you should watch them in order. Well, I, I do because I, I, you know, the first thing I did, this rarely happens, but the first thing I did was look up what else can I, you know, what else, right? <laughs> right. Because I Is just, this the first of his movies that you've seen? It, it, it isn't. Actually, I was telling a friend that I was watching and she mentioned your favorite and she was like, oh, you know, I love this movie, but I also love, you know. Days the, of the, being wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I might make her rewatch with me and 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 okay. go down that rabbit hole with me but you know it's just i i was just trying to think of i had this thought as a as a viewer who loves romance and romance who that makes you feel settled or or fulfilled or and and i thought would i is there a version of this film that could make me happy without keeping these two apart and obviously there really isn't and and there is something that that you know we talked about Sofia Coppola and and to me that you know that's a big debate right of of lost in translation is that moment earned right of not knowing what Bill Murray says and mm. is it cool and interesting and can you fill it in or is it just like eh, like I, I don't know I go back and forth on it especially when I hear people's interpretations like is I know what what this character is saying when he was. I mean, I, I I believe I know, right? I believe I know the spirit of of what mm. this this character in this film whispers into a special you know sort of place for secrets and for intentions and mm. and it it feels so earned of like so much of a love story is being able to tell it right and to be able to acknowledge that it happened and this film does that just so beautifully that even in real time in these scenes because they're constantly talking about their spouses and the affair, mm -hmm. they're they're talking about each other. And I'm so glad I didn't, at least at first, see a version where I ever saw the, a spouse, even if it was at the very end. It's interesting, you know, if you when you read about how this was made, so he, he doesn't really work with a script, or there's a script, but they depart from it. Oh, wow. Yeah, this film was quite a long time in the making. 
And it started with a different title, Summers uh, in Beijing, I think, and really became a different movie as they discovered it. So it actually started about with the, the affair. And there was there are some scenes where they are like, you know, getting in bed and and, you know, fooling around. And it was pretty erotic and naughty. And uh, Lung said somehow the film became more subtle as we made it. Mm. So a lot of stuff ended up on the on the um, the cutting room floor including some scenes that are like really pretty ripely erotic, but were too much. And there's a scene in the deleted scenes where they're sitting, they're pretending to be their spouses and they're sitting side by side and they start taking their clothes off because imagining what their spouses would be doing while also wanting to take their clothes off. And it's too much. You can see that, okay, we're getting too close to the flame here. This isn't something that should be in the movie. Yeah, I, I you're making me think of another comparison that doesn't feel quite right, but the and I'm I'm blanking on the director's name who made Drinking Buddies and also a very, you know, the kind of film where people the script is very loose, right? And it's Anna Kendrick, Olivia Wilde, Jake Johnson, yes, and yeah, Ron Livingston. And about. it sort of follows Joe Swanberg. Thank you. Well, it's it's part of part of this movement that is has been dubbed mumblecore, but doesn't like to call itself mumblecore. Low budget, lo-fi. You know, stories about people in rooms talking. Yes. And I will say that I am not a huge mumblecore person at all, but Drinking Buddies felt, well, nobody was mumbling. That's the first thing. And the second <laughs> thing was, I really felt like there was, it It was a fair look at how emotional affairs begin and where they go, right? And mm -hmm. you have, it sort of centers two couples, two people work together and just a very natural flirting that begins to develop. And what does this mean? And this sort of like forced gathering of both couples. And and so this and you can very much after the fact, when I read that so much of the script was sort of even changed as the characters developed, I was like, oh, I can see this, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, you have Anna Kendrick. She's a certain kind of actress. She can be funny. She can be mm -hmm. charming. She can be childlike when she wants to be, even when, she, you know, there's a very uh, manipulative part of that character, right? And, but I, I think it's very interesting to think about this movie, which is wildly different, but that even the way they flirt, which is so subtle, these two characters, it feels so organic of just mm. what are we allowed to do? You know, again, the the play rehearsing of what if what if we confront? What if we walk away? What if we... It just feels like two people talking. Like you, for, you forget you're watching a movie. Do you... There are a couple of moments where it's almost like the film bifurcates, where you, you see the character do one thing, and then it's, without rewinding, you see the character do something different. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's almost as if they're playing out the options in their head, and the movie's letting them do it for us and for them. That moment where they turn out to be playing at leaving each other, you know, mm -hmm. her saying, my husband's returned and I'm not doing this anymore, and him saying that I must leave... For a second, I was tricked and thought it was happening. Mm -hmm. And the relief I felt when I realized that was just, a, you know, play acting. And when she starts to cry, that's when I lost it. Uh -huh. um, because I was so wrapped up in, please don't separate these people. And yet I knew this was temporary. You know, like whatever, whatever choices they made, it wasn't going to look. You know, I also, one of the things I really liked about it is very rarely do I think about real estate. <laughs> and memories and and you know but there is a thing where you drive by your old house your old apartment and you think about who you might have been dating at that point or who you might have mm -hmm. been pining for in that time and this is a beautiful use of like they both visit the place 
Yeah. And, you know, that, you know, here's this woman who welcomed them and, and, you know, oh, that wasn't lovely time, isn't it? And it's like so much is wrapped up in this these apartments that they keep returning to them and they want to live there again. And right. they're, you know, right. and well, if they can't live with the other person, they can live in the in, in the apartment in the memory. Have, right. They're right. like these memory right. bo- memory boxes. And it almost felt like a diorama. Right. Where they're sort of going back and forth and you, you get to see in. And um, I could not think of a film that that where I I felt attached to the real estate and Mm. in in such a way where like this is where it was possible to have these feelings and be in love and speak some truths and once we leave it's reality again it's interesting you know that those apartments that are side by side and they're very small and cramped and the rooms that they rent in those apartments are pretty small and then they've got this other world that they go to the 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 apartment that he's rented with that long red hallway in room 2046, which, by the way, um, is not just the title of the movie that followed this, but is also the year that Hong Kong is finally returned to the Chinese. Hmm. Not that there's a political dimension to this movie, but not that there isn't a political dimension to this movie. But that space has all these sort of visual space and color that they're lacking in the apartments in which they actually live with their spouses. It's a sort of not just an actual real estate space, but an emotional space and a a memory space. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the scenes with, with her at work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found them delightful also. So there are moments where you're pulled out of the world, but also they only add to, to what you feel when they're home. Right. At work where she's covering up for her boss, his affair, mm-hmm. and, you know, lying to his wife. So, you know, this is all around and clearly which she doesn't respect, but can't say anything about. So that factors in to how she behaves with her her lover. I want to talk a little bit about this tradition from an American Hollywood fed point of view of European art films and foreign language art films in which we expect the romance to not be consummated or to end happily. And I know that if as Americans, we never see the commercial or rarely see the commercial output of France. We don't see the dumb comedies and the straight-up romances that they make in France or Japan because they don't get imported here, although yeah. they're, easier to, they're easier to find now in the streaming era. The movies that do make it here you know, tend to be indie art house festival winners. And we expect the rules to be different. And, and I'm thinking of, you know, a classic, I'm thinking of classic like Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Have you seen Umbrellas of no, Cherbourg? No, which is, you have, you have asked me many times to watch, so I need yeah. to, that should be my next. You know, which is a musical, a through-sung musical. Yeah. I mean, it's La La Land 50 years early in which, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but does, does not end the way you want. Which La La Land doesn't, but well, La La Land... Well, I was Land, just going to say, La La yeah. Land is a great example of, but, but La La Land also gives you a little piece of a vision of what could have been. Right. Yes. Which is like, which I felt like, okay, at least I saw it. <laughs> at least I saw them together. It doesn't have to end, end with them together. But yes, it's fair. And and that movie would not exist without Umbrellas of Cher- Cherbourg. And um, uh, what's the director's name? Uh, Damien Chazelle yeah. has gone on the record about that. Um, I'm thinking of going back to, to me, like the, the granddaddy of repressed, messed up, sorry, I love you, but we're not going to get together because we're, you know, too repressed to do it, is Brief Encounter. Okay. You know, uh, Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson meeting, you know, on, on public conveyance and, and 
basically dithering over whether they're going to cheat on their spouses. I mean, there's a direct line from Brief Encounter to In the Mood for Love. One is very, very British, and one is very, very Hong Kong, um, and very Wong Kar Wai. And Brief Encounter is also freighted with, plays with notions of, well, you know, uh, morals, moralism, propriety, not just the characters, but the audiences, in a way that I think audiences watching Brief Encounter felt that, oh yeah, you wanted them to get together, but you knew it was going to be a really terrible idea and, and then things would go south fast in their marriages and life. And, you know, you would have to disapprove of them on some level. That's just where the, the culture was. Watching In the Mood for Love, you're just like, no, please stop being so uptight. Please get together. Stop please being get so, together. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we in the audience have no compunction about it whatsoever. Right. We're we're fine. I wanted to be like, we're fine with it. We're not judging you. It's totally right. fine. I mean, I think even with American films, we're uncomfortable with the idea of anything even being temporary. So, so much, not even that, you know, people can come together for an affair, sure, but like they have, to, there has to be the happily ever after. I mean, I remember being younger and being very confused by the ending of The Bodyguard, right? Like this is a movie where I'm like, mm. this woman has a career. She's got to go off and do her thing. He's going to go guard a different body maybe but like and they're gonna say goodbye but like i was like but can't he just be her permanent bodyguard <laughs> can't he just you know it just the, this idea that some relationships are meant not to last even if they are consummated it's just like it's it's a very uncomfortable thing and and too real of an idea to accept right for, for right. me sometimes but 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 you know but yes it, it, it you know when you're talking about sort of like european movies and i think about french films and even me sometimes not knowing when they're over. And there are reasons for this, right? Because I've been trained as... I remember going to see Clouds of Sils Maria and I like kept mm. standing up and I was like, nope, nope. Nope. Not done yet. <laughs> so, and I love that film, right? This, so, you know, but I think you're right. As these as different films become more available streaming, it is easier for me to get my head around loving and feeling romantic about a film that doesn't mm -hmm. give me every little thing I want wrapped up in a nice package. And this right. is this is a prime example of that. I also think it's interesting that when American audiences are exposed to a film like this, they love it. Not, you know, like this yeah. is this is a movie that is loved for you know, like we we want it. So yeah, this was a this was a worldwide hit. It was a very very big art house hit in America. Obviously, not a multiplex kind of hit, but um, it was you know, and it was on the end of the year best lists. I think if it came out today, it would be. Excuse me, Oscar nominated for best picture for sure. I can't, you know, I'm I'm going to take a a second to look if it was. I don't know that it was nominated for best picture back in 2001, uh, but I'm going to take a quick peek. Well, a couple of things I want to talk about. You know, you mentioned movies, American movies that yeah, they they don't necessarily have happy endings where they don't get together. Yet those push a different button and seem to be less cherished than the When Harry's Met Sally's. You know, where everything or the, the, the Notting Hills, where they do get together in a way that feels preordained and fresh and pushes all your buttons. What are some of the other movies where they don't get together and yet we come out feeling like we have been well served, emotionally well served? I think they used to do it a lot better in Hollywood back in, in the days of the classic women's films. But that's another uh, matter. I mean, listen, I'm going to bring up Bridges Madison County again, even though Please I don't, do. I, you know, part of me really doesn't want to, but I, 
I understand all of it, but whatever age I was when I saw that film, I really wanted to punch something because I was like, come on, get out of the car. Like this idea, I think it was very difficult for me as a younger person to understand why someone wouldn't go off and live their dream, you know, whatever. And I, and I do think one of the weird things about a lot of these American romantic movies is that not only does it end in this preordained, perfect way, I can't even imagine how these people would remain happy. Like with Notting Hill, right. this is not going to be an easy relationship. Like this guy, you know, th- these things that kept them apart or mm-hmm. provide or, or you know, cr- created conflict are only going to still be there or get worse, right? And, um, you know, I just saw um, The Lost City, and I <laughs> highly, highly recommend it for people who, well, one, just need something that they can smile at. And and I will say that it very, I don't know, Ty, if you've seen it yet. But, I have. I mean, I was very worried about the Romancing the Stone piece of it. Mm-hmm. But it seems to honor that instead of deny its existence, in my opinion. I, I, I can't remember if you wrote about it. Now I'm wondering, did I read anything you've written about it yet? Yeah, no? I, did, I you, did write about you it. You did write I, about I, it. Okay. Yeah. I found it amusing and kind of forgettable. Um, and there are parts in it I liked. And I honestly, I didn't buy them as a couple. I well, did not. Yeah. This is the this is the thing, right? Like, it's... it's and that's it, a really some, good example of, yeah, these people aren't going to last after the end credits. Right, you know? like... Right. And they but they give you the end credits of them together, which I guess I I didn't even hope for that. But I was like, okay, like, that's great. But I'm like, these people, they don't say they're don't show them walking down an aisle or anything like that. But like, I think the implication is these people are now coupled. And I'm like, okay, but I I do think with this movie as a romance novel reader and of course, Sandra Bullock plays a romance novelist. They clearly got some help and the romance novel community loves this film. Do they? And they love it. And from what I've seen, I, there could be outliers, but, you know, there's a moment in which, you know, Sandra Bullock is even saying, you know, what I write is schlock, what I write, you know, this is, uh, I could have, I could be doing more. And Channing Tatum does a very Channing Tatum thing and looks at mm-hmm. her and says, do not disrespect your audience. Mm-hmm. Like, you bring mm-hmm. them joy. And like, what you write is important and what you write is good. And it does, it's nothing, it's no less than that because it's about romance. And of course, what he's saying is what every romance novelist believes, you know, which is that these stories are no less important because they're traditionally women's stories and, and this kind of thing. But yeah, to, I, I bring it up because <laughs> it was a thing where I was like, are they going to try to tie this up at the end, making this these two people a couple forevermore? And it was a little bit more implied that than I wanted there to be. Like, we we do like these movies where like, I mean, the one nice thing about when Harry met Sally is, like, at the end of that movie, they become one of those couples interviewed, Correct. right? Yep. And they sound just as neurotic and stressed out as they've ever been, right? There's no implication. These are people that are not going to change, and they're going to fight all the time, and they're going to—she's going to irritate him, and and at least there's that reality, right? But I, I, there are not that many movies where—that I can think—I mean, I think there's also something about lost time that stresses me out, like— this idea that in this film, this beautiful film, they, th- there are these moments where they almost see each other again and then they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. and, you know, for it, those... Calls, calls for a sliding doors uh, uh, effect. yeah, totally. Where you're just like, almost, 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 and they sense each other behind the door, maybe, and I love that kind of thing. But, you know, like, I am not a fan of The Notebook. Uh, you know, I'm... Uh, but <laughs> this idea that what does get me every time... Well, barely. But but the idea of it is, I wrote you for years, right? This idea that mm-hmm. we've now lost years or 
movies where people meet as much older people and they realize they were both thinking the same thing for years and Mm -hmm. now they show up and they're like 90 and it's like, I'm like, great, you know, but like this idea that like we only have so much time here and we could have been together. And I think this plays with that too, right? Like I I left the movie or watching, you know, In the Mood for Love, imagining whether this is as much of the story as I know. Mm. And maybe too hopeful, right? That like, I don't know. I don't know what happens, right? I mean, it sounds like it's hinted at in other films, but, like, this is what we know and for there's now. More, there's more to the story that, that we don't know, that we weren't told? I mean, I don't know. Let, let, what have we learned from Before Sunrise? What have we learned, right? Which is that <laughs> we can revisit the same two people 20 years later, 30 years later, and mm-hmm. find that they have, that the internet in, got invented and they can Google each other, That that, you know, that people can show up much later. I mean, this was a thought I had maybe an hour after watching the movie where I, I was trying to find peace, right? My, find my my American <laughs> my American narrative closure that I was looking yep. for. But, may, but maybe it's not over, right? And, you know, I, I think actually that, that that's another one that's pretty great, right? Like this idea of th- that, what are there, three of them, the Before Sunrise movies, like, you yep. know, are we going to... Before we're Sunrise, too young. Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. Uh, Right. Like this idea of, well, now we're young and just in different places and just having a memory, having and and in a, and then, well, wait a minute. Is the memory that we loved from so long ago enough to leave lives, to leave spouses, to leave, you know? And, and so, yeah. Ugh. Have you watched a, a TV series, a British TV series called Last Tango in Halifax? No, but I'm already loving the title. It, it is. It is about a couple an elderly couple, I think they're in their 80s, maybe even older. Uh, Derek Jacoby is the uh, is the man, and I've, um, I, I'm blanking out on the actress playing the 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 woman, but you've seen her in tons of things. Um, Anne Reed, I think, and they connect. Uh, they were they were in love in their 20s, and then married other people and disappeared from each other's lives, and then they meet again and get married to the shock of their children and grandchildren, and it becomes this running soap opera. But it. It takes that idea of, well, what would happen if these two who just couldn't get it together then met much later in life and tried to make it work? And it plays it out as a really kind of a uh, a, a very British family uh, disaster comedy because, you know, some of the kids are pretty messed up. And, yeah, uh, it's it's a fun series. It's I think it's got like three seasons. It's available on, on Netflix. But few places... Few movies, obviously, are able to sort of play that out, but a TV series can in different ways. Well, I'll tell you, as my in my day job as an advice columnist, it's one of the most common letters I receive, which is mm. I found I looked online and found this person I went to high school with. I loved her then. I love her now. I haven't seen her in 30 years, but I know it. You know, this the, the way. And people, what do you say? I mean, like, you don't you don't know it. Right. That's what you know. Right. Which mm-hmm. is I usually tell people it says more about what they're currently doing in their marriage than. Yep. But, but but it is. But it's a concept I think people like to explore the what if. And right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then I, to me, that's called stalking. But, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. They, oh, for sure. A little bit yeah. of that. And 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 a way to really be like, I'm going to seek out and if I'm going to I'm going to use the inter. I'm going to use Mark Zuckerberg's Internet to start an affair. There's a lot of right. that. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are in the mood for love. Yeah. I think Wong Kar Wai's style and his way of telling a story has been picked up by other filmmakers. Uh, the sensuality of his style, the, you know, the the texture, the texture of his filmmaking, 
And the sort of faith in things unsaid, in that you can have people be silent in a room together and still know what's going on between them. Yes. And, you know, let the, let the, the lighting and the camera work and the music do that. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like he explored that in a way people hadn't really, although, you know, you could go back to a movie like Hiroshima Mon Amour by Alan Rene, which is yet another classic European, you know, romance that does not end the way, I mean, it, it actually takes the idea of a romantic drama and atomizes it and just sort of, and, and I say that knowing that it's partially about Hiroshima and it's set there. One last thing you would, so you mentioned movies that you think have been influenced by this. Which movies did you have in mind? You may tell me I'm very wrong and I will accept that. But there's something about it that also made me think of Out of Sight. And I think we've talked about Out of Sight Mm -hmm. in one of these episodes. But like imagine a world where there are these shots of beautiful things and parts of the room and but you're also consummating, right, with, with these characters, right? Like that, that George Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez, um, that you know, Soderbergh takes it a step further. But mm-hmm. again, it's a, we know these two people can't wind up together. There is something very sensual about the way they interact. They're sort of dealing with some morality issues to some extent. But but I I think it was more in what I consider to be one of the best sex scenes ever, where it's sort of out of order and out of sight, and you're you're seeing them at the table downstairs, but then you're seeing them in the room, you're seeing her mm-hmm. in a bra, but then you're seeing them still, be, be still in the moments before. So, like, if I took out all like the actually sexy times moments, like it's glances, it's I know this could happen, it's should it happen, it's mm-hmm. I'm a cop and you're a criminal, right? Right? It's it's <laughs> it's a different thing that keeps them apart, but. I wondered, I wondered a little bit just because it's it's an artier way to say these people are really ready to rip their clothes off and don't know if they can or should. And they know that whatever they do will feel wrong and temporary, but we want it. Uh, unfortunately, Out of Sight predates In the move, Mood for Love by two years. Oh, my God. Is that true? God, I feel like Out of Sight came out five minutes ago. <laughs> but well, let us let us not say in any world that Out of Sight influenced in the mood for love. I I, no. heard, I I will not allow for that, but um perhaps the better thing to say is that it that it, you know, brought out some emotions in me about what that particular scene felt like to watch and also how unnecessary the sort of the sex part of it is in the end mm. in some ways, right? Mm. And how effective it can be to truly explore what it looks like when two people are are connecting in different ways. Right. And <laughs> And that's a Soderbergh thing is to, you know, dice up the the, the editing, dice up the scene with yeah. the editing and go a little cubist with it just to, to see something fresh, which obviously worked in this case. Yeah. I do think that when Hollywood movies, commercial Hollywood movies make unhappy romances, romantic movies that don't end happily, they usually have to come up in many cases with a reason that is beyond the control of the characters. I'm thinking of Love Story. Alan McGraw, you know, gets what we all call, refer to as movie-wasting disease. Yeah. Um, it's not, not an actual diagnosis, but right. for the purposes of the movie, that's the diagnosis. Or, um, you know, if in the notebook, you know, Alzheimer's. Um, yeah. And, and, and Bridges of Madison County, I think, is an exception. And it, and it is a cousin to In the Mood for Love in that these are people who are fairly straight-laced in their lives who can't bring themselves to alter their lives 
can't bring themselves to break free in a way that has a kind of actually a sort of deeper tragedy to it. And and they keep secrets, right? Like from my memory yes. at the end of, of Bridges of Madison County, it's like like the kids are like, did you and maybe you don't tell your kids this this thing. But this idea that like if I was going through what these characters in this movie are going through, I'd be calling everyone I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, husband's having an affair, totally hot guy next door. I mean, yeah. it's just this idea that there's so much that they're dealing with just internally and with no one else. And it feel and, and that the, the person who gets to know the secret is you like the the the, the audience. And it feels so special. Right. Right. It's 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 very much a movie about secrets. And the only person who knows about that scene at the end with whispering his just all delivering all of his longing into that. Right into a wall. Cat, right into a wall, <laughs> a hole in the wall. We're the only people who see that. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And I will that what another favorite scene that I do want to bring up is when they have a conversation about like what would it have been like had we just remained single, right? Where it's I mm. think this is like mm. a, such a you know, I think a lot about what movies as an as an unmarried person in her 40s, I think a lot about what films say about marriage, right? And what films mm-hmm. it, it was a very interesting thing to see these characters be like, ah, you know, I'd only have to worry about myself. I wouldn't have to worry about expectation, where I think a lot of people think it's very difficult to be single after a certain age. But I, in fact, think like, oh my, like, eh, it's not that hard, right? Like, I just, it, 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 but I think, I don't know, it's such a fascinating thing to to hear characters who are in difficult marriages talk about just the idea of why do we do this? Like, why do we couple forever? And there are so many beautiful reasons we do it. Right. Although the the view of marriage in in the mood for love is pretty dyspeptic, um, I don't know yeah. that there's a you know her boss is cheating on his wife, uh, the landlady has an alcoholic husband. Nobody nobody's happy in their union in this movie that I can remember. It's true. It's a pretty bleak look, but it's also I think it's another reason why even when they're saying we're not like them, it's like almost mm-hmm. like they're saying we're not like all of these people, right? We we are different. We are, and even watching them bond over this this you know thing that he's writing is like it's it just it, it has such a different vibe where i will not not root for them it's a lovely movie if you haven't seen it it's available on the criterion channel with a ton of extras as a criterion dvd with a ton of extras you can rent it on amazon i think i watched it on hbo max for free too. Oh, oh yeah. so i think okay. right now it's 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 very available so oh my gosh watch it yell at the screen big screen and good sound system is a plus and uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time, Meredith, to have these little four conversations. And maybe we'll have more down the line. This is this has been so much fun, and especially to revisit movies. You know, I hadn't seen Sliding Doors in a while, and to watch it again, and to, mm-hmm. revisiting some of these, especially the magical movies, and and seeing some of them for the first time. You know, it was very interesting. I thought a lot about what we've talked about as I saw The Lost City, not because it's such a memorable movie, but I thought you know, more about the Jennifer Lopez movie and about maybe some mm-hmm. of these big, big romances are coming back and big funny romances are coming back. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, just there's so much yet to be discovered. But thank you for letting me talk about a lot of love stories. Well, thanks for talking about them with me. And thank you, folks, for listening. I'm Ty Burr. This is Meredith Goldstein. Read her column in the Boston Globe and pick up her books. And um, we'll be seeing you later. Thanks. That's all for today. This has been Ty Burr's Watchcast. 
an audio companion to the Substack movie newsletter, Tiber's Watchlist. If you'd like more pop culture commentary and a guide to good movies in theaters and on demand, please feel free to check out my newsletter at tiberswatchlist.substack.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hold up. 